if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one there in the seat pocket in front of you. And we are on page 565. Now, if you need a Bible for either yourself or you want to give one to somebody, someone, don't hesitate taking that with you. It would be our gift to you, and, and we would uh, certainly uh, want you to, to be, feel free to take that. Okay? So our reading today is Galatians 1, starting in verse 3. It says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be all glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, Let them be under God's curse. As I have said already, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Thus says God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, and we who have put our trust in you make declaration today that we are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're committed to the gospel as it was, as it was lived by you, as it was demonstrated by you on the cross, as it was demonstrated by you as you came out of the grave and as you ascended to your Father's glory, seated next to him on the right hand of his power. We are committed to the gospel as it was given to us by your holy apostles who preached and, and wrote as the Holy Spirit moved them to help us to understand the meaning of your life. God, we pray that you would make us sensitive and aware to any usurping lie, any falsehood that would try to take the place of your gospel, and that we would immediately, instinctively, by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, reject it, and run back to the truth of your word. Father, we ask that you would even do this this morning. Help us to understand your glorious gospel, the announcement that Christ has come, and that he has, through his own death, reconciled worthless sinners to the most worthy God, and that now we live together in unity 
that will be eternal. We thank you for that, God. Thank you for the announcement of your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help me today, that you would just come alongside me and that you would dwell in me and that you would empower me to preach, Lord God, knowing how frail, knowing how prone to hypocrisy that I am, Lord. God, let me speak as one who who bears your very words, Lord God. I ask for your assistance this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. Before I get started, I just want to to uh, mention a couple things. If you forgot, tonight is the sweetheart dinner dance we're going to have over at the Ebenezer. If you're signed up for that, we're, we're full. We don't have any more slots. But if, if, if you're going to be there, I want to remind you it starts at 530. If you need any more information, you can ask Paul or ask Randy um, about that, and they'll, they'll give you all the information you need. Also want to mention to you, um, that I want to thank you rather on, on behalf of myself, Pastor David, Paul Landers, um, the, for the freedom you gave us to be gone last week for our elders retreat. Um, I've, I've said to a few people that this was no play date. We, uh, we had intensive discussion, hours and hours of discussion about the future, the vision, um, the ministry, and the calling that's on Northridge Life Church. And we really feel like the Lord has given us some direction um, particularly for 2020, and we'll be sharing that with you more and more in the next uh, few weeks. And so we're really excited about what God is doing. But thank you for uh, letting us do that. It was a really necessary um, departure for us. also want to thank Paul for holding down the fort and uh, bringing the gospel to you. Were you guys blessed by his word last week? And so, yeah, go ahead. So today we're starting a new series, and I found it necessary to go this direction as I talked with the other elders because it seems to me that many of us who grew up in Western culture, North America, Europe, if we grew up in Western culture, we confuse the way things are, the way we see them now in the 21st century with the way things have always been. That doesn't mean that we believe that you know, the things that are now have always been, but we just seem to forget that that we live in a world where things have advanced quickly and changed dramatically, that advances in medicine and transportation, technology, they're all easy to take for granted, and that the things that we enjoy now have occupied a relatively small percentage of human history. And this is not only true of innovations like your phone and, and, and you know, your computer and things like that. It's, it's not only true of innovations, but it's also true of institutions as well. If you uh, know anything about history, then you will know that education and government and even religious life in the world has dramatically changed and, and they're very different than they were, say, 500 or 1,000 years ago. So what I want to do today is I want to examine in a very kind of, you know, high altitude overview. I want to examine with you the history of the church and I want to look at with you together where we have been for the purpose of understanding where we might be going. And and if we understand where we're going, then we might be able to understand what we might need to do to correct the course we're on. Are you guys all all aboard for this journey? So George Santayana 
said this phrase. You've all heard it, even if you don't know where it came from. He famously said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You ever heard that quote? And and it's a really significant quote, especially for us in the church. And, And what it tells me is that the church mustn't make the same mistakes that we made in the past or we'll wind up in the same places that we wound up. And so what, what I'm trying to propose to you this morning is to consider whether there could be a cycle. Imagine a cycle, a circular cycle in, in church history. Could there be this cycle of, of truth, a foundation of truth that gets corrupted into error that eventually leads to correction back to truth? Could there be a cycle like that that the church experiences from time to time? And if so, what shape does that cycle take? And if there is such a cycle, then it's really important for us to determine where we are in the 21st century in the American church in that cycle. Are we firmly rooted and grounded in truth? Have we descended or are we descending into error? Or are we in the place where the, where the corrections necessary are, are being made to bring us back to truth? Where are we? So the, we're going to look at this in our walk through history and we're going to break it down even further for you over the next five weeks in this series we're beginning. So to, to start off the history of the church, you need to know that after Jesus ascended, after his resurrection, he ascended back to the Father, he poured out his spirit on the church. 120 people were gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, 40 days or, or um, uh, uh, 40 days after his, his uh, 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 resurrection. They, they gathered in the upper room, including the 11 apostles, and they were filled dramatically with power. You can read about this in Acts 2. And, and on this day, Peter preaches the gospel to this assembled crowd who were there for the festival of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And over 3,000 believers in one day were added to the number of the church. 3,000 believers. Now, so many of you have read that so many times that the impact of that dramatic thing has been completely lost on you. 3,000 believers. Can you, we don't even have 120 people here today, but can you imagine if, if God so anointed our gathering today that next week there were you plus 3,000 people? That would be a dramatic Thing. We are talking about impressive church growth. I would probably get an article in Christianity today. And, and it wasn't just Peter. This wasn't just a lightning rod that struck Peter. The others who were also filled with this power and this presence of the living God, the Holy Spirit, immediately and joyously began to proclaim the good news of Jesus all throughout Judea. And this is what the Bible does at the end of Acts chapter 2 when it describes the life of that group of people. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Listen, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That means miracles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
They couldn't keep up with the the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. It was happening explosively. And in this moment, an infant church was born. And and they were marked by this embracing of the teachings of Christ by the apostles. And and they, they witnessed incredible miracles that confirmed the word that was being preached. And they lived in this transformative, exemplary community. They were devoted to each other as well. And, And this church just kept growing and growing and growing. Didn't take long before the Jews that surrounded them and the Romans under whose occupation they lived noticed this little sect of believers who worshipped a crucified carpenter from a nowhere town in northern Israel called Nazareth. And these Jews, just like they did with Jesus, were firmly convinced that their their whole purpose was to challenge Moses, to, to challenge the authority of the temple. And the Romans were even more incensed thinking that they were challenging the authority, the universal authority over the whole world of Caesar. And so soon many of these guys were arrested, they were beaten, they were imprisoned, and they were even killed. Riots broke out, whole cities were in an uproar. You can read all about this in the book of Acts. As the word that was proclaimed, that there was this reaction to this word that was being proclaimed throughout all the empire, that Jesus not Caesar, was Lord. But but in the face of arresting and beating and imprisoning and killing the people of God, nothing could stop the church. It had no negative effect on the church whatsoever. Jesus had declared this would be the case in Matthew 16, talking to Peter, he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And that's exactly what was happening in the first century. It was, it was so intense what was happening at that time that one of the early persecutors of the church, Saul of Tarsus, this perfect Jew who hated this, this seeming blasphemy of these, these Christians who said that this carpenter was Lord, he hated it and so he got authority to go arrest Christians and throw them in prison. But as he was going to Damascus one day to do that, to lock up Christians, guess what happened? The Son of God met him on the road and locked him up. (laughs) He arrested him by his grace and by his power. And Jesus Christ in love gave him a life sentence, which he gladly served until the day Nero beheaded him. Several years later, Saul, this Saul of Tarsus, he became Paul the Apostle. And along with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Peter, and Jude, they wrote the story of Jesus and they lined out the doctrines explaining the meaning of his life. And these letters to various churches became known as the New Testament. And and they were based on the teachings that were contained in the Old Testament and the the prophetic promises that were fulfilled by Christ in the Old Testament. And all of those promises were fulfilled, all of them, by Christ's life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. And the gathered church took those New Testament writings and they've affirmed these writings to be the Word of God equal with the Old Testament many times throughout church history. And in the centuries after that, most of us know, or at least a large portion of us know up to that point in the story, but in the centuries after the apostles died, 
The gospel spread like wildfire throughout Asia Minor, throughout Europe, throughout Northern Africa. And church fathers, some of these names you may have never heard, but you should really at least look up their Wikipedia page. It's fascinating what God did through these men. Men like John Chrysostom and Ambrose and Augustine and Basil and Jerome and Athanasius. They defended the fledgling faith against heresies that threatened to upend the purity of the gospel. These men were absolutely committed to the purity of the gospel. And contemporary to these men, happening at the same time, the emperor of the Roman Empire, Constantine, ceased. He had this this uh, uh, spiritual experience, and it caused him to move the the same Roman Empire that had persecuted Christians. In three thirteen eighteen, Constantine declared an end to all state persecution of Christians. He said, "It's over." They are absolutely legal. They can worship uh, Jesus as they want and just ended the persecution. Furthermore, after his death, Theodosius I made Christianity the official state religion of the Roman Empire in 380 AD. Now, I don't know if you just heard what I said, but let's rewind the, the tape just a little bit and imagine this. In about AD 33, somewhere around there, 120 believers meet to pray in Jerusalem. And God collides with them like a freight train, filling them with power, empowering their message, sending them out with passion and joy to proclaim the gospel. 120 men and women. And and in, in just 300, less than 350 years, the Roman world... That was the center of the universe at that time. The entire Roman world declares that their, what they are proclaiming is the official religion of the entire empire. In less than 350 years, we'll think, well, 350 years, Mark, that's a long time. Think about it. There is no printing press. There is no electronic media, no internet. There's nothing. All that was, that was used to make this happen in, in deeply pagan lands was simply the, procl- the proclamation and the defense of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and, and by these men and women being willing to die for the truths that they believed. And nothing could squash it until it took over the entire Roman Empire. That's huge, folks. And it should tell you something. If this hundred or so people committed themselves to the truth of the gospel and, 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 and just committed themselves to being filled with the Holy Spirit, what could happen in 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years? What could happen? But unfortunately, this newfound freedom under the Roman Empire, under the Roman law, was not always a good thing. Because, see, the liberated and now unpersecuted church became fat and they became lazy very quickly. They they had no resistance from any governmental officials and that made them just kind of slip into kind of cruise control. And fewer people were speaking up against the heresies that threatened the church with corruption. And so people began to, from the inside, politically organize the church 
And they would rise as regional bishops over North Africa or over uh, the, the Middle East or over portions of Europe. And they would accrue to themselves power and wealth. And in so doing, they abandoned the words of Christ, the directive words of Christ to his disciples, his first 12 apostles. You can read about that, those words in Luke chapter 9, verse 1 beginning. It says, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out for this purpose, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he told them this, listen, this is key. He told them this, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, No money, not even an extra shirt. But what happened was these bishops began to gain for themselves great political power. Assessing to themselves tremendous authority. And, and, and they, they would, in, in all of that, they would gather to themselves, like Paul talked about Zacchaeus last week, they would begin to acquire for themselves great wealth. And the Bishop of Rome, which was the eternal city, the, the main city of the old world, the, the Bishop of Rome particularly gained great prominence. So much so that by the sixth century, the Bishop of Rome claimed authority, one man over the entire church. He was the Pope, Il Papa, the Holy Father, superior to all other bishops because he could lay a dubious claim to a line of succession directly from the Apostle Peter. And this only led to him acquiring more power, more wealth. And, and, and the popes of the early Middle Ages claimed authority not just over religious affairs, but this is where it got really scary. They began to claim authority over temporal, earthly kingdom affairs as well. Nobody said this better. No one declared the intent of the papacy better than a pope named Innocent III. Interesting name. He said that the successor of Peter, speaking of himself, is the vicar of Christ. He's been established as the mediator between God and man. Below God, but beyond man. Less than God, but more than man. Who shall judge all and shall be judged by no one. The words of Innocent III. Let me tell you why that's problematic. Because the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, There is one mediator between God and man. And then to to take away any doubt, he identified that mediator. He said, it is the man, Jesus Christ. And to claim to be the vicar of Christ, that word vicar means to stand in his place, that he is taking the place of Christ. This was kind of a big deal. This kind of declaration was easy to make because most people living in Europe in these days were illiterate, completely illiterate. They had no access to scripture and they were widely superstitious. So Bruce Shelley writes in his history of the church, he says that the papacy's chief weapon in support of their authority were spiritual penalties. Almost everyone existing in Europe at that time believed in heaven and hell and they believed more so in the Pope's management of the grace that was necessary to get to one, heaven, and to avoid the other, hell. And so everyone said, if we mess with the Pope, we're messing with our eternity. The Pope could excommunicate people from the church. 
Meaning that if they were separated from the one true church, then they had no chance of salvation in the other world. Or he could keep a soul in purgatory for centuries, working off all of their damning sins through constant torment. And these concepts of the Pope's authority and and purgatory and all of those things, they have no biblical basis whatsoever. And yet all of Europe was held prisoner by these concepts for centuries. For centuries. There were no nations at that time, as as we think of them, if you were looked at a map of Europe at that time, you wouldn't see, well, here's Italy, here's Germany, here's France. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wasn't like that. There were city-states and regional dominions. And so what that meant was, over all of those, only one person had universal religious and political power, and that man was the Pope. Others ruled at the pleasure of the Pope, and if the Pope wanted you gone, you were gone. The Pope had lands that were, that were given to him by other rulers and he commanded armies. Furthermore, people did not have the, the ability. You might think, well, gosh, sounds terrible, Mark. Why didn't they just go to another church? Funny you should ask. There was no such thing as religious dissent. There were no other denominations to turn to. If you got ticked off with the Pope, you couldn't go be a Methodist. It didn't work that way. The only church in your village was the universal Catholic church directly under the thumb of the popes. That's why we call these the dark ages. The light of the gospel had been diminished to just a flicker. Oh, it was still there. Nothing can snuff out the gospel. But it was diminished to just a flicker in Europe. And, and don't get me wrong, there were brave, educated people who spoke up and they tried to bring reform, and, and with some of them with, with tremendous impact, but they were usually eventually excommunicated, they were persecuted, they were exiled, and they were even martyred. When you get a chance, look on, on uh, Wikipedia again and read the stories of men like, like John Wycliffe and, and Jan Hus. They were, these guys were serious reformers before the Reformation. And as time dragged on, the popes claimed more power, more wealth, more authority for themselves. And, and, and at the same time, they were heaping burdens and blasphemies on God's people. For example, let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about specifically. Peasants and commoners, which, which described most of the people living at that time, they were required by law to attend the Mass. Some of you missed some church this week, or, the, or this month, or in the last couple of months. And, and if you're honest, you just did it because you wanted to. And, and, and I, I kind of wish we had those laws, but you wouldn't have had that right in the, in the Middle Ages. You had to show up. I'm kidding, but, but, but in, in the, the law was you had to show up for mass. And, and, and when you got there, you know, you think, well, that's not a bad thing to have people come to church. But when you got there, the mass was presented only in Latin. It was never presented in the familiar tongue of the people. And so can you imagine if, if you guys came to church this morning and I spent the whole morning speaking nothing but Mandarin Chinese? Are there any Mandarin Chinese speakers in the house today? Okay, so none of you would understand a word of what I was saying. That describes, in very literal terms, what was happening in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages. 
You had to know Latin. In order to study the scriptures for yourself, you had to be able to read, which the feudal system has already indicated made highly unlikely. And you also had to know Latin. If you were an English speaker or a Spanish speaker, you had to know Latin as well. And if you were fortunate enough to be literate, to be educated, you had to own, you could own rather, a Latin Bible. But they were expensive and hard to come by. And if you got one and began to read it and understand it, you were absolutely forbidden by law to interpret it in any way that contradicted the Roman church's conclusions on any matter. Does this sound a little oppressive to you? And the mass, let's talk about the mass. The mass was and still is an absolute desecration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel teaches that the bread and wine were actually a continuation of Christ's sacrifice. In other words, you weren't alive when he died, so we got to see him crucified before you once again so that you can be cleansed of your sins. And the elements of the, the bread and the wine, they were literally thought to be the literal flesh and blood of Christ Jesus once consumed. And, and offering that by the priest predisposed God, it, it forced God rather, to be gracious to those to whom it was offered. And this completely, what I want you to see why this is a problem, is because it completely ignores the teaching of both Hebrews, when the writer says there that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was once for all. He actually says that many times throughout the book of Hebrews. And also, more importantly probably, it, it, it contradicts the words of Jesus Christ himself. When dying on the cross, he said these words, It is finished. So people were taught that submission to the Pope was absolutely necessary for salvation. And, and that showed itself in things like this. The Pope substituted simple trust in the work of Jesus Christ for salvation with the selling of indulgences. Now, you may not be familiar with that term, but an indulgence was a document that was sold to people with the promise of grace. You buy this document from me and you will acquire grace so that your loved one's time in purgatory will be lessened. Johann Tetzel was a, a villain of the later Middle Ages who would go about with the Pope's authority selling indulgences in Germany with these words. He would say, as soon as the gold in my coffer rings, a rescued soul to heaven springs. That's pretty nasty, isn't it? Let me tell you a funny story about Johann Tetzel. Johann Tetzel was selling, uh, this, uh, it was selling uh, indulgences one day. And a nobleman in the village where he was came up to him and he said, Mr. Tetzel, if I purchase a uh, an indulgence now, will it cover my future sins? Tetzel, on the brink of a sale, he says, absolutely. If you buy this indulgence, it will cover some some sin that you might commit in the future. He says, great, I'll take one. He buys the indulgence. The, the day ends. Tetzel packs up his stuff and heads off into the, into, down the road into the woods where he is met by the nobleman who seizes him and begins to beat the living tar out of him. Beats him within an inch of his life. 
And, and when, when uh, Tetzel reports this and takes him to the magistrate, the magistrate says, says, did you do this? He said, absolutely I did. He says, well, what is your defense? He says, I bought an indulgence. I paid for that sin already. And so I thought that was a pretty good fundraiser for the youth group. We'll just sell indulgences <laughs> so you can beat people that you want to beat. And so <laughs> I thought that was a funny story. Kind of, kind of, kind of bit. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the clarification. We will not be selling indulgences. <laughs> See me after church. Um, by the dawn of the 16th century, I mean, I've listed a whole list of accusations, terrible things, They're absolutely historical, provable. You can, you can look at secular sources and find out everything I said was true. Got a lot of footnotes in my own notes that you can look up. But by the dawn of the 16th century... This one universal Catholic church was absolutely ripe for reformation. Absolutely, something had to change. Something had to break. Do you you ever think, in the midst of all this abuse and apostasy, heresy, blasphemy, undue burdens placed on the people of God, do you ever think that God was ever out of control? Do you ever think that God failed to see what was happening? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God had a plan. So the instigator of that reformation was a German you've probably heard of named Martin Luther. Luther was a promising, studious, diligent law student. When a terrifying experience, a near-death experience in a thunderstorm in 1505 caused him to cry out as a true good Catholic to St. Anne in prayer, and he pledged that if she would just save him from death, that he would become a monk. And it wasn't Luther's habit to make casual religious vows. He, He, soon after this experience, abandoned his study, and he threw himself into the life of the monastery. He wrecked his health, literally wrecked his health, trying to be perfect. He would pray for hours on end, oftentimes staying up all night. He would literally, literally beat himself with straps. And he would deny himself creature comforts, creature comforts like blankets in the dead of winter in Europe, which is really cold, so that he could punish all the sin out of his flesh. He thought if he, if he weighed, put a, enough of a burden on his flesh that the sin would finally be broken. He was known, as most monks were, for, go, to going, for going to confession. Monks were required to go to confession. But Luther did something that other monks didn't. He went every single day. And if that wasn't enough, when he did go to confession every single day, he would confess for up to six hours in a day. Now, if I go 15 minutes longer than I'm supposed to, y'all get ticked off. But I would hate to be the priest who had to listen to the minutia of Luther's sins for six solid hours every single day. That would be like having a second job. But they sat there patiently listening until his mentor said to him, he said, Luther, stop it. He said, I am forbidding you to come to me anymore unless you have something worth listening to. Go commit a murder, go commit adultery, but don't bring this stuff to me anymore. But see, this wouldn't do for Martin Luther. 
Absolutely not. See, because he had buried himself in God's word. And he was perfectly convinced that God, from what he was seeing in scripture, that God was perfectly holy. And that if God was perfectly holy, then it must be his requirement to be perfectly righteous. Because a perfectly holy God could require no less. So he didn't give him any outs. He didn't give himself any excuses for any of his sins, big or small. He would do anything to clear himself, but to no avail. He began to feel as though insanity was taking over. Because of this perfectionism, it it nearly drove him mad. When people would ask him about his love for God, he would literally reply, Love God! Sometimes I hate Him! Because of the burden of his own sin and the, the inability he had to find release from the sin that he had. All the prescriptions of the popes and the traditions of the church were doing nothing to release the burden on him. Nothing. Sometimes I hate him. But he couldn't ignore what the scriptures said to him about God's holy demands. Now I do not agree with where Luther was at this time in his life theologically. But I passionately long for the deep awe and respect that he had for God's holiness. I desperately want to look into God's word, to look into the face of God and tremble as I know that he is infinitely holy and that he is not grading you or me on some kind of curve that all I got to be is a little bit better than you in order to please him. No. The Bible says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. But all of this pressure, this borderline insanity, this these beatings, this, this agony, this con- confession, all of it changed when Luther was desperately anxiously trying to understand Paul's letter to the Romans. And in that study, he didn't get very far. He got to about the middle of the first chapter and he read these words. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Watch, this was the nuclear explosion that went off in Luther's soul. For the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Faith. And that phrase, the righteous will live by faith, burrowed into his fertile heart like an acorn. And he saw for the first time in his religious life that a man cannot, does not become righteous by what he does. He does not become 
righteous by what he chooses not to do, but he becomes righteous by placing his faith solely in what Christ has done. And it didn't take long, didn't take long at all for that little acorn tucked in his heart to take root and it began to grow into this mighty oak of truth. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed a document to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And it contained 95 separate arguments that he wanted to debate about the authority of the Pope, about the selling of indulgences, about the nature of salvation and the Christian life. And this, this seemingly negligible moment was the beginning of what we call in history the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. It was a direct challenge by the truth of God to the, to the abuses and the lies of the Catholic Church. And over the following decades, through much pain, much persecution, this Reformation spread throughout all of Europe. It was carried on by men such as Huldrych Zwingli and John Calvin in Switzerland, by men like William Tyndall in, in England, by men like John Knox in Scotland. And out of this Reformation came five distinct doctrines. This is where I really want your focus. Five distinct doctrines that etched a clear line of demarcation. It was a grand canyon chasm between the Catholic Church and the burgeoning Reformation. These people that called themselves Protestants, they were protesting what was presented presented to them daily in the, in the uh, Catholic churches and at the Mass. And, and these were all stated in the Latin of the day. That was the language of the day, and so they were stated in Latin. The first one was sola scriptura, and this means scripture alone. Second one was solus Christus, which means Christ alone. Sola gratia, which means grace alone. Sola fide, which means faith alone. And lastly, soli Deo Gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. Sola Scriptura meant that the final authority in the life of believers was Scripture alone. Not the pronouncements of popes or councils or creeds or the traditions of the church. Sola Scriptura also insists that every believer should have access to the Bible. And they should be taught by the church to interpret it for themselves. It insists, it absolutely insists that scripture is authoritative. It's inerrant. It's sufficient for everything we need to know about God. And solus Christus. It declares that absolute headship over the, over, uh, uh, of the church is Christ alone. And that he is the sole mediator between God and man. He does not place popes or priests or pastors or any other person in that exclusive role. He alone is the mediator. And as such, all believers have direct access to him. It is entirely unnecessary. It is entirely ineffective to pray to saints and angels for Christ alone intercedes for the church and he alone answers her prayers. Sola gratia teaches that salvation is extended to men and women, boys and girls, by the free electing grace of God alone. No one can earn it by their own merit or by the surplus merit of dead saints or of others. God alone saves sinners because he is good. 
good. And, he, and never because you or I have been good enough. Sola fide says that we're saved by placing our faith in God's love that was shown to us by Jesus Christ on the cross, that we're made righteous by trusting him. Martin Luther said that justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Soli Deo Gloria. This is the overarching proclamation that all of this is to the praise of God alone. All the work of salvation is accomplished for one purpose, one purpose for the work of salvation, that God the Father might be glorified in us through Jesus the Son. It is His one eternal aim. So we're going to spend the next five weeks analyzing these truths in greater detail, but you might be asking, and I would understand if you were, why is this even necessary? I mean, after all, you just told this long story of church history. Weren't, weren't all these issues settled in the sixth uh, or in the sixteenth century? I want you to consider another Latin phrase from the Reformation. Man, you guys are getting a Latin education today, and I'm not charging you anything for it. Consider this Latin phrase from the Reformation: "Ecclesia reformata semper reformanda," and it means this: the church reformed. Always reforming. This phrase was coined by a Dutch minister named Jacobus van Lodenstein in 1674. And what he meant was that because of human sin, 100% of us, all sinners, and because of the drift of our own hearts, we must always be reforming. We don't look back to something that happened in the 16th century and say, okay, check that off our list, we're reformed. We're always reforming. Now, when I say reforming, that doesn't mean that we should always be changing, finding new things, discovering something new to grab onto and, and, and uh, jettison the old. What it means is that we should be returning. Yeah. We're returning to truths that are timeless, truths that are eternal. See, this is what the 16th century reformers did. They didn't find anything new. They just went back to the Word. The church had become corrupt because of man-made power structures. Brave men like Luther and the others called her back to the purity of sola scriptura, of the scriptures alone to give them guidance and direction and, and truth for their lives. In an age where many sermons are nothing more than self-help, self-help motivation speeches, or they're highly subjective experiences that are touted as authoritative, we need to remember, let this never be mistaken by the people of Northridge Life Church, that the eternal God is revealed only in Scripture. It is only in Scripture alone where we see the eternal God. In a church where preachers, authors, musicians become celebrities, where Christians look more like the world than the Savior, we need to be reminded of the beauty and of the value of Christ Jesus alone and above all. When the purveyors of the so-called prosperity gospel promise material wealth and physical health in exchange for financial gifts, we need to remember that we are saved by the boundless unmerited grace of God alone. And in a success-driven, perfectionistic world, 
that measures your worth, my worth, by our performance, we must return to the simple belief and faith in Jesus alone. When we're tempted, as we all are, to esteem ourselves more highly than we ought to, or to fight to carve out a name for ourselves, or to build a legacy for ourselves, let us be found, the true people of God, let us be found living and perhaps even dying for the glory of God alone. In our text this morning that Daryl read to us, Paul very strongly pronounces a curse on those who would proclaim a different gospel than the one that the apostles proclaimed. So whether it's in the Catholicism of the Dark Ages or in the attractionalism and humanism of the 21st century, the five solas can call us back to what mattered from the very beginning. Do we still need these five solas? I'm asking, do we still need these five solas? I think we do. I think that there are many things in Christian brotherhood that we can disagree on. But if we disagree on any one of these points that I laid out to you that we call the five solas, if we disagree on any one of those points, we cease to become Christian. We cease to be able to identify as Christian if we embrace more than Scripture, more than Christ, more than grace, more than faith, more than the glory of God, or less than Scripture, less than Jesus, less than grace, less than faith, less than the glory of God. We become less than Christian. I think we still need the five solas, and I think it's time for a brand new reformation. My prayer is this, Lord Jesus, let it begin at Northridge Life Church. Semper reformanda, always reforming. May we always be reforming and returning to his holy word. I'm going to ask our communion workers to come up. This is a serious word. It it, it allows us to stand, once again, like Martin Luther, just blinded by the holiness of God and blinded by the ways that we, yes, we might have substituted lesser things for the gospel of Jesus Christ expressed in these five simple doctrines. And so... The book of 2 Corinthians gives us great counsel. It says that we are to examine ourselves. I think Paul used that passage last week in his message. And I want to encourage you right now to take this moment and examine yourself. Paul actually, in his um, message to to the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper, he encourages at that moment when we're gathered around the table of the Lord to examine ourselves. So this is perfectly appropriate. I said to 
neglect these truths, these five timeless truths, was to be something less than Christian. So ask yourself this morning, in your self-examination, are you committed to Scripture alone? When the Scripture says, you shall not covet, do you find yourself just eaten up with that American materialistic covetousness. When it says, you shall not commit adultery, and Jesus says, he who's looked on a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery already, do you find yourself just just ripped up with adultery? When you find Scripture saying that God dwells in the highest place in the Psalms? Do you have other things, material or career pursuits that you have elevated to the highest place? Is scripture, is scripture alone what you're clinging to, to give you guidance in life? How about Christ alone? Do you have other saviors in your life? Do you have money or success or reputation or uh, just some relationship? Are there other things that you're looking to to be a functional savior to you? Do you cling only to the grace of God, knowing that you have nothing to to, to good to offer to earn your salvation? Or do you boast at how much better you are than someone else, more righteous, more moral? Do you have a bunch of religious habits that you take pride in that think are earning your way to heaven? Or do you know that you are completely lost if you don't just put your simple faith and trust in what Christ has done? And are you willing, like John the Baptist to say he must increase and I must decrease. He didn't say even if I must decrease. He says he must increase and I must decrease so that you can live your life to the glory of God alone. Search your heart. Don't be a coward. Be honest. Let the Lord reform you this morning. Let Semper Reformanda be more than just a a motto you get tattooed on your arm. Let it be a truth that buries itself deep in your heart, always reforming, always returning to the Word. Take this moment to repent. Lay your heart bare. Throw all your idols down. Light them on fire and walk away from them and say solely Deo Gloria, all to the glory of God. not here before you because I would be tremendously hypocritical if I were telling you that you must be morally perfect in order to be a believer, in order to be welcomed at this table. What I am telling you is that you must be committed to always casting down any confidences you have anywhere else but in Christ Jesus. So that's what I'm asking you for today. Not to clean up your act, but to throw down your idols. Declare once again, and again and again, and again and again, your allegiance, your devotion to Christ Jesus and Him alone. Now, if you 
done that, if you're doing it, if you're willing to do it, I want to invite you to the table of the Lord in a moment. But I want to reemphasize, don't rush. Do business with God before you come. This is serious business. Paul said some are sick. Some have died because they came up here hastily. If you're not a believer, don't come. If you have children who have not professed faith in Jesus, even with the evidence of being baptized, I would, I would encourage them not to come. This is serious, serious, serious business. But for those of us who have embraced the Savior as our only hope, this is joyful, celebratory business. Because we get to remember the life and the death of Jesus Christ, his cleansing blood, his healing wounds on his body. And we get to say that his brokenness unites us as a body where we will live forever and one day stand together before his throne rejoicing for all eternity. So I'm going to ask you to stand as I read these all familiar words of institution. And as I do, let the Lord just bestow his grace on your heart as you've asked for it now. Trust him. That's sola fide, faith alone. Trust him that he's given you what you've asked for. And come and feast on the table, at the table on the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death when, until he comes. And I'm telling you, when you eat this bread and you, you take this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death and this is what you're proclaiming. Not just that he died, but that he died and it matters. That he died and it's changed you. That, you. that he died and because of it, you are made new. Because he died, you who were sinners have been made righteous. Because he died, you are now a chosen and you are one of his and you will never be separated from him. That's what you're declaring. His death matters. So with that in mind, I want to come and now and invite you to come and feast upon the grace of the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your body that was broken, your blood that was shed. We thank you that it matters. We thank you that it means something. We thank you that this is this representation is the is where all of the things we talked about today are formulated. It's where they all find their context. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen.